Hello and welcome to Random Walk, a sciencey podcast where we take multiple steps of unit length, each with directions selected independently from the previous step. I'm your host, Adam Fortis. This week's Random Walk comes from a place near and dear to my heart, polymer physics. Polymers are basically any molecule that consists of repeating units. Plastics and rubbers are everyday examples, where the base unit is something small and simple, and often man-made. But just because the base unit is small doesn't mean these molecules are small. Hundreds, if not thousands, of these monomers, as they're called, are linked together in a long, long chain. Another sometimes overlooked polymer is actually DNA. It, too, is just a long chain of repeating units, only these ones code for stuff like proteins. Now, I mean, don't get me started on polymers as information storage devices. This is sort of a a speculative science or science fiction-y type. Uh, I mean, some people are researching it, but uh, it is a whole other can of worms. But speaking of worms, a bulk of polymer, on the molecular level at least, <laughs> kind of looks like a can of worms. Each polymer molecule is kind of like this big, long string, a worm, if you will, or a lump of cooked spaghetti, maybe that gets tangled up with all the other big long tangles of spaghetti. Now, if you think about eating spaghetti, or I I suppose worms if we want to keep with that analogy, the longer the the noodle, the harder it is to pull a single noodle off of your plate without bringing everything else with it. Typically, you'll get a wad of noodles since they all tend to get tangled up with each other. On the other hand, risotto or, uh, you know, short rice looking noodles, don't tend to tangle because, I mean, they're just not very long. The same sort of thing happens with polymers, and this is one aspect of polymers that determines whether the bulk of material will be all soft and goopy, even liquidy sometimes, like a, uh, a glob of warm silly putty, or if it's going to be hard and rigid like the egg that silly putty comes in. Now, another part of this model is how the lengths of polymers are distributed in the bulk. Now, you can imagine having a big, long polymer, You know, DNA can stretch out to be several meters long, but if it coils tightly around itself in little tiny globules, it's not going to get all tangled up with the other globs. So part of understanding what the bulk of polymer will look like and what it'll do, how it'll behave, is determined by the amount of space a single polymer chain will take up. And to understand this, we can use a random walk model. So here we go. Picture our drunken walker from a few weeks back. That's our our sort of our canonical example of random walking. So he steps out of a bar and can either turn left or right with equal probability. He takes a step and has the exact same problem, left or right. Step again, same decision. Okay, so that's what we're starting with. Now let's alter this model and say that he can walk north, south, east, or west. So one in four probability of going either of those directions. And now let's also tie a string to him and let him leave a trail. Now the string, in this case, is our polymer chain. And the trail that the string leaves behind is a good simulation of what a lump of spaghetti that is our single polymer chain will look like. Now we can alter this model, make it a little bit better by introducing certain rules, like say the the walker has to avoid crossing his own string. That's a a self-avoiding random walk, and it sort of makes the glob a bit bigger, as you can imagine. Or maybe he has to follow Google Maps and only stay on sidewalks. But, you know, that's the gist. 
Okay, this week we are building towers out of rocks because the US military wants us to, buying lottery tickets instead of writing grant proposals. It actually might be the best way to do it. Watching NASA play Armageddon starring Bruce Willis, you aren't going to want to close your eyes, you aren't going to want to fall asleep, etc, etc, and you won't want to miss a thing from this episode. And, of course, my favorite, Jesse's back, talking ecology on Gamer's Guide to Ecology. This, e- this week, we're starting in on the deep sea planet of Subnautica. But first, this podcast is brought to you by scientificcanada.ca. The goal of Scientific Canada is to get real science to real people, which we do by producing entertaining, hopefully, and informative, hopefully, content about research, academia, and, you know, being a curious nerd in general. A big part of our thing is finding and promoting new projects and new voices with financial support and expertise as well. So, if you have an idea for a project, podcast, writing, anything really, we'd love to hear from you. Head to scientificcanada.ca to check out some of the shows and articles we've helped with. And if you want to discuss details of your project, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Fortis. That's F-O-R-T-A-I-S. Or email me at fortisadam at gmail.com. Support for our projects comes for our generous and ultra-smart Patreon subscribers. You can find out more about how you can help us with our next projects over at patreon.com slash Thanks! Hey there, welcome back. I'm Jesse D, a master's student in ecology and evolution and an open world RPG gamer. Welcome to the first episode of the next series in Gamer's Guide to Ecology, where I play popular open world RPGs from an ecological perspective. On today's episode of Gamer's Guide to Ecology, I dive into the strange world of xenobiology and talk about potential alien biomes and biodiversity and their similarity to life on Earth. You can follow along with my playthroughs on twitch.tv slash justjessyd on Thursday and Friday nights from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. This month I'm playing Subnautica, published by Unknown Worlds Entertainment in 2018. It rose in popularity through streaming sites like Twitch and YouTube, and especially so during the pandemic. It's a survival and crafting game that takes place almost entirely underwater on an alien planet called Planet 4546B. As a survivor of a crashed interstellar spaceship, you have to fight off hunger, thirst, and the dangers of unknown flora and fauna to survive and find a way to escape the planet. This game is terrifying. It's a vast open world full of action and adventure and plenty of secrets to discover. Get your Jacques Cousteau fix exploring aquatic biomes at various depths and search for answers about past crash survivors, all while dodging dangerous predators. Subnautica has a quick day-night cycle in which it gets particularly dark under the water at night. The atmosphere is breathable to humans, and presumably the water on planet 4546b is salt water because you have to find a way to make fresh water to drink. Recall that a large-scale terrestrial environment characterized by a particular climate and dominant plant life is called a biome. Aquatic biomes exist too and are stratified zones based on depth, light quality, and temperature. Today I'll talk about some of the biomes in Subnautica and in-game examples of plants and animals that can be found in them. Since this game is based on an aquatic alien world, there are no real-life examples of the animals depicted, and most of the biomes in-game are free from anthropogenic disturbances. To wrap up, I'll tell you my overall rating of Subnautica and some of my favorite parts of the game. 
The game begins with a splash. When your escape pod lands in the shallows of a water planet, you emerge from your escape pod into a colorful and wildlife-rich coral reef-type area. On Earth, coral reefs support highly diverse communities of microscopic organisms, plants, and animals. And that's also true for the safe shallows biome in Subnautica. The safe shallows is aptly named because it's the shallowest biome and contains relatively few predator species. There's a high density of bladder fish for filtered water, other edible fish, and corals and mushrooms that you can use for crafting. The initial easy access to a high number of important resources makes this area ideal for a first base structure. Exploring beyond the safe shallows, you'll find the kelp forest biome. This biome is dominated by a kelp-like plant called creepvine that mutes light intensity and gives the area an eerie green glow. Kelp forests on Earth are home to a high variety of organisms and predators, and the in-game kelp forest is no exception. At the start of the game, this is a good area to get quartz crystal and salt deposits for crafting. You'll also find lots of metal salvage and wrecks to dive here. Both the safe shallows and the kelp forest biomes also have many caves that can be dangerous to explore if your oxygen capacity is low. Radiating out from the safe shallows, another nearby but deeper in-game biome is the grassy plateaus. This biome is characterized by wide open flat areas dominated by red seagrasses. If you stand still on the bottom, you might just forget that you're underwater because the grass moves back and forth gently as though there was a light breeze. This area has a high level of biodiversity of edible fish, but they're fast and appear in such low density that they're hard to catch. Density is an ecological measure that describes the number of individuals in a population per unit of area. Although there might be a lot of fish in this area, because they're so spread out, they're said to be in low density. This biome is easy to pilot large vehicles around it and makes a great large base location. There are some more dangerous predators in this biome, and you might come across your first Leviathan-class creature here. Leviathan-class organisms are not taxonomically related. Remember taxonomy and related species? Leviathan-class organisms are classified solely based on their large size. The vicinity of the crashed spaceship is called the crash zone. This ecological zone has been severely damaged by the crash and the subsequent leaking of radiation from the ship's engines. It is essentially a barren underwater, sandy wasteland riddled with scrap metal and supply containers. Be warned, dangerous predators roam here and may have been drawn to the area by the noise and creation of new territory. I'll talk more about the behavior of leviathans that may or may not be in this area in the next episode. There are other distinct cave biomes in Subnautica that exist at depths of 500 meters or more. These deep biomes have unique plant and animal life that are adapted to those environments. There's no natural light in caves or at such depths, so a lot of animals here are capable of bioluminescence, which is a method that organisms use to produce light through chemical means, like fireflies. I'll discuss the potential forces of selection that plants and animals would experience in these regions and the resultant evolutionary adaptations in the coming episodes. I want to dry off today by sharing my favorite part of this game. While exploring the world, you sometimes come across old bases constructed by previous survivors of crashed ships. I love that these old structures are rusted, broken, and being inhabited and claimed by flora and fauna. For instance, they're sometimes covered in barnacles and have fish, grasses, and a venomous jellyfish-like creature living inside them. When plants and animals reclaim habitat following a disturbance event or colonize new substrate, ecologists call this succession. This is a natural process that occurs on Earth too. 
You can see succession in action underwater if you Google photos of sunken ships. Succession also occurs on land and is the basis of the meme, Nature's Healing. If you want to see ecological succession happening terrestrially, look up photos of Pripyat, an abandoned town near the Chernobyl power plant in Ukraine. Subnautica is a super fun game if you want minimal cues from the game on where to go or what to do next. Its beautiful marine landscapes and high biodiversity make the world feel alive. Large predators reinforce the feeling that you're the alien in their home surf. For the freedom to explore the world at your own pace, limited by realistic oxygen, hunger, and thirst demands, I recommend Subnautica to gamers that love survival and crafting and give it five sea stars. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening today and download new episodes as they come out. And please follow my Twitch channel as well. Come say hi in the chat during streams at twitch.tv slash justjessyd to help me hit affiliate. Your support means that I can buy more open world and RPG games and keep making episodes about in-game ecology. Thanks for tuning in. Hope to catch you next time. Podcast art is by Laura LeBlanc. Theme music is called Rain Song by Brett Eagleston, and you can hear more of his music at bretteagleston.bandcamp.com. This week I spent some time with a new article from the Holmes Lab at Boston University. They do a lot of work with granular materials like rocks and soil, and as far as I know, are one of the first people to, to really, or one of the first groups to really dig into uh, a field called elastogranularity. One of the first science articles I ever wrote about was, uh, was on one of these Doug Holmes papers. Uh, where they looked at the way a flexible rod would bend and buckle when inserted into a chamber with different sized spheres. So, it sounds like a pretty weird experiment, but the analogy here is that, say, for example, a root grows into soil. What the root will interact with is a bunch of, you know, granular material or spheres of different sizes. And what they found was that with a simple model experiment, they replicated a lot of uh, well-known soil root behaviors, things we would come to expect from nature. And here's an excerpt from the original post that I wrote. How an elastic beam deforms under load has been a question for as long as there have been engineers to ask it. In some cases, the force on a beam is approximated as a single point. For example, if a diving board is large enough, a diver at the end can be treated as a point mass on the beam. Another common approximation is to consider the force to be a continuous pressure along its length. Treating wind that bends a tree branch as a continuous pressure along the branch's length is much simpler than adding up the force from every molecule of air on the branch. However, consider the case of a root growing into a granular material like soil. As the root burrows through the soil, it will bend due to varying point-like forces along its length. The result is a branching and twisting root system that tries to grow along the path of least resistance. An example of the diversity in plant root morphology morphologies is shown in the figure below and this is a figure of you know different uh, different types of plants and the, the different branching and uh, lengths and excursions that their their roots go along and uh, if you want to look at this picture check out scientificcanada.ca 
This system bears a striking resemblance to that of plant roots growing into soil and could be useful in understanding how environmental pressures cause plant root systems to evolve. Another example, cacti need to absorb as much water as they can from their environment. One way they can accomplish this is to increase the surface area of the root system by growing wide and close to the surface, rather than deep, in order to collect water from a larger area. By developing thin roots that buckle before they can deeply penetrate into the soil, many cacti are able to produce the shallow, wide-reaching roots the system needs to find water. So, this new article, not exactly root-based, although we'll see a little bit later that maybe there is some root action going on, um, but it follows the granular material trend that their lab has been uh, working along. It actually kind of uses all the same materials as this uh, previous study that I wrote about, but in completely different and new ways. In this paper, they attempt to build the tallest stable tower they can out of granular material, something strong enough that you know, a grad student could stand on it, for example. You could pile rocks into a mound, but that's not going to be very efficient material-wise. But that's kind of the idea that, uh, that they're starting from. So how do we improve on the, the rock pile? Instead of just piling it, they actually use elastic loops as a method to stabilize these columns of rocks. Uh, now, these rocks could actually be pebbles or peanut M&Ms. They tried all of these things. You can think of these elastic loops as a series of belts that wrap around the column. And basically, that's all it takes. That's what they were looking into. No other structural support is needed, and these columns, they have a picture of it. A grad student is, in fact, standing on it. So, I mean, it works. So, a natural question to ask now is, how many of these loops do we actually need make, uh, to, to allow the, the column to stand strong? How far apart can the loops be from each other to keep the column stable? Well, the answer ends up depending on the types of grains or rocks you use, and the types of loops. In general, the more spherical and smooth the rocks are, the harder it will be to stabilize the column. Also, the more flexible the loops, the closer they need to be to each other. However, irregular shaped rocks will be able to lock in to each other in a sense, allowing for greater stability. Likewise, a stiffer loop means the outward pressure from the column attempting to make the column fall apart will have a harder time pushing the loops out of their way. This brings up an interesting point relating to their analysis. So they ran actual experiments, but they also presented a fairly simple but accurate model that was able to predict their results. And one of the cool things about the model was how they treated the granular material the columns were made from. Most importantly, they made the assumption that the granular material would behave a lot like a fluid. Now, that's not something you typically think a pile of rocks as being, you know, a massive fluid. But if you imagine standing on a can of Coke or something, the hydrostatic pressure in the can increases as you try to squish the can down. And if it can't compressed downwards, the fluid will try to go out the sides of the can. This is the same idea that they incorporated into their model in the way that a granular material would try to escape from these columns. Of course, they had to include a few small changes here and there, but otherwise the analogy ended up working well for them. So why do all of this? Well, it seems it could have some promise as a technique for building structures out of debris. 
In Boston University's press release about this work, the author made note that the project was funded by a U.S. military grant, which, I mean, is not uncommon. They fund a lot of fundamental research across all sorts of different fields. But the press release did then paint a picture of a post-bombing debris field where the survivors need to rebuild quickly. Pretty grim. Wasn't a huge fan of that. I much prefer Doug Holmes, the primary investigator's vision. From the original press release, eventually, Holmes would like to see this minimalist technology applied to more ambitious temporary structures, shoring up roads or seawalls in ways that don't butt heads with nature. Quote, We could think about not using ropes at all, Holmes said. Maybe we should use roots of growing materials to stabilize structures to prevent erosion from wind and water, to have some natural component that could help them be self-healing and adaptable to changes in the land. There are a ton of ways we could make these temporary structures permanent, but I think the harmonious approach is more compelling. So as I mentioned partway through this, uh, there's a bunch of pictures that can go with this, uh, this little news story. So if you'd like to get a look at these root systems or some of these columns, you can head over to scientificcanada.ca where I will be sharing some of these images. And of course, I'll share the original research and press release you can check out. Research funding via the lottery. Is it more equitable? I was just reminded the other day of a story Nature News ran a while back about funding lotteries. I'm not sure why it was on my mind recently. Maybe because I'm in the middle of applying for a whole whack of grants and fellowships right now. But the idea is traditional granting processes, which generally rely on committees, large committees sometimes, reviewing and ranking applications manually, takes a lot of time are a lot of work to do, and, you know, as you might expect, are rife with unfairness and bias, despite most agencies' attempts at mitigating this. For instance, here are a few other Nature News headlines that uh, just came up when I was googling this story. Male researchers, quote, vague language more likely to win grants. Gender bias goes away when grant reviewers focus on the science. Racial bias continues to haunt NIH grants. Thousands of grant peer reviewers share concerns in global survey. Okay, so the basic idea here is that once applications meet a certain quality threshold, which are set relatively low, they're thrown into a hat. From there, a certain number of applications are chosen at random to receive the awards. So one of the benefits of a type of system like this is that it cuts down on labor on all sides. For instance, I can't remember the last time my poor supervisor had a chance to get into the lab and do lab work. For most of these researchers and primary investigators, they got into acti academia because they loved doing science. That manifests itself in all sorts of different ways, but you know, preparing grant proposals and serving on often volunteer committees, it's not really the most beloved part of the job. I've never really met a supervisor who, uh, who glowed at the idea of writing grant proposals. Now, since a lot of the burden of decision-making is taken off the shoulders of reviewers, applications don't need to be as detailed. This saves the researcher time and energy, of course. And another often overlooked side of the coin, too, is, you know, a young researcher's obligation to teach. All of these little bits add up to a lot of non-research work that a young scientist needs to get done at probably the most precarious point of their career, 
when they're building towards long-term grants and tenure. You know, serving on these committees and, and writing up these grant proposals is just an extra task that maybe they don't need to do. Now, there are a few caveats that I'm sure are decided on by an agency when they, uh, in, you know, bring this kind of system into their uh, granting decisions. And here are some of the details that I'd be interested to hear more about. For example, should these be for more exploratory? Should these types of granting decisions be made for more exploratory research? Uh, could including an approximate ranking and weighting bias help for these systems? Or maybe applying the random process to only mid-level applications, like home run applications that are head and shoulders above the rest. Maybe they should just get a pass and get the, the funding they want right away. There's also some problems, of course, that you can imagine. How about the uh, the feel bad of, you know, knowing that you have a great application, but, you know, it just comes down to chance that you, you don't get the, the money this year. Also, what if you end up granting a few too many researchers hoping to study the exact same thing. If you don't have, you know, people making these manual decisions, maybe you end up with a thousand people all studying elastogranularity. That'd be cool for me. I'd really like that, but maybe not the best use of, of grant money. So my instinct with this sort of thing is that we should analyze its merits objectively and quantitatively if possible. Of course, quantifying what is equitable comes with its own set of issues. But in a sense, the main idea behind this lottery system is to take personalities and in fact the individual out of the process completely. I think a lot of proponents and critics would say that the most important thing in awarding grants is that they're awarded for the science. Nevertheless, it is interesting and probably informative to investigate how researchers feel about these types of processes. And uh, I managed to find a recent study published in Research Evaluation, a journal I had never heard of by Axel Phillips. In this, uh, in this paper, he said the following. A recent survey offers a more differentiated picture among scientists who applied for randomly allocated explorer grants from the Health Research Council in New Zealand. This is the council that made big waves implementing this, uh, this lottery system. The study reveals that the majority of applicants found it an acceptable method for distributing the explorer grant but they were indecisive regarding other types of grants. Based on these findings, the authors suggest that scientists are more supportive of random approval if grants are small and target more risky research. However, participants also disclose they are only positive about selecting proposals by lot if certain conditions are met, such as that all proposals are of equal merit, deemed worthy enough, or reach the threshold requirements. So this study by Axel Phillips was aimed at understanding researchers' feelings about the process. While I don't think any quantitatively useful results are going to come from, you know, just talking to 32 German researchers on how they feel about grant lotteries, the study is certainly useful as a way to, you know, crowdsource some ideas on how to run these programs and potential issues to look for. In particular, several, re several researchers pointed out a quality of life enhancement that I wouldn't have really considered initially. Here's a quote from the paper. But, of course, I personally would want to know at some point, as far as my proposal went, whether I was chosen randomly or selected. Another researcher interviewed said, Then I would want to hear afterwards that it wasn't an inherent technical problem in my application, but that I just didn't have any luck in the random selection. Okay, so I'm not sure if I agree with this part 
being this being a part of the process, telling people whether they were selected randomly or uh, by committee. But I understand where the idea does come from. I'd rather know if there's a fundamental issue with my application, you know, if I was pitching nonsense or if I just needed to try again next year. On the other hand, scientists are really good at coming up with absurd metrics to differentiate themselves. So I wouldn't be too surprised if CVs started adding selected recipient on their list of awards and awarded at random being omitted, you know, just to make you look a little bit better. So, what do you think? Should randomized lotteries be included in grant decisions? How would you feel about getting turned down for an award because your number didn't come up this year? How about not knowing if you lost out for a reason? What would your concerns be with such a process? You can let me know on Twitter, at Adam Fortis. Okay, that's it for this episode. If you have comments or questions, concerns, whatever, find me on Twitter at Adam Fortis, F-O-R-T-A-I-S, or email me at FortisAdam at gmail.com. Find more of Jesse DeHaan on Twitter at DeHaanJ, that's at D-E-H-A-A-N-J. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at JustJessieD. Our music was provided by my friends from the band Boonie. Find them at boonie.rocks. Again, it's a little confusing. There's no .com or anything. .com has been replaced with rocks. So that's B-O-O-N-I-E dot R-O-C-K-S. If you like the show, share it with a friend. We are on all streaming on all streaming platforms as far as I know. And YouTube. Just look for Scientific Canada. Finally, if you want to learn more, or if you want to help support more creators, head to scientificcanada.ca. See ya!